If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Psalm 41. Psalm 41 is where we're headed this morning. We already heard the final verse of it as we gathered. Um, as you're turning there, I, I mentioned this in the email that I sent out this week. Uh, but did you know that the Psalms are divided into five books? Uh, the Psalms are divided into five books. If, if you look at the end of Psalm 41, once you get there, you'll see book two. Uh, it begins with Psalm 42. So um, today, after uh, five summers uh, walking through the Psalms, we finish book one uh, of five, right? All right, so we got a little ways to go. Um, but it's divided into these five different books. Um, not an even split. It's not like there's 30 in each one, obviously. It's not an obvious split. There aren't uh, clear themes necessarily collected in each one, although there may be some uh, common things in each of these little collections. But nonetheless, there are five book headings throughout the Psalms, and each of these books concludes with a great praise and often a double amen, as we already heard, amen and amen. Uh, that's how each of these closes. You know, there's, there's a lot of different thoughts about these different five books of Psalms, but one of them is this idea that the Psalms were patterned after the five books of Torah, the five books of the law, uh, which is to say the praises of God's people are always in response to the word that God has spoken. Uh, every time we praise God, it is a response to what God has already done. And so that is why we gather to worship this morning. That is why we work our way through the Psalms each summer, uh, to respond to what God has done in praise. And so today, as the summer comes to a close, we come to a close of book one and we see that amen and amen. But before we get there, I want to ask you a question. Uh, do you know about social media hashtags? Are you familiar with, with these things? Um, it, it uses that little symbol, once known as a pound sign, uh, to mark the topic of a post on social media. Right? So, um, maybe someone posts a couple selfie photo and they put hashtag love. Right? That's sweet. Or maybe there's a sunrise picture that someone has posted and they put hashtag beautiful. Uh, or maybe, uh, you know, there's a, a photo of a rare bird and they put hashtag nature, right? You get the idea, right? You, you put this little symbol and, and a word that marks the topic of what you've posted on social media. Well, one very popular social media hashtag is hashtag blessed. Hashtag blessed. You see it all the time. Uh, someone will post something, a story of something that happened, a picture of something, and they'll put hashtag blessed at the end of it. And so here's a question that I have for you. I want you to imagine, what kinds of things would you expect to see in a post with hashtag blessed at the end of it? What would you expect? I'd love to hear you, yeah, share, share a couple responses. What would you expect to find? 
Yeah, so someone going to travel somewhere. Hashtag blessed. Uh huh. A birth of a child. Yeah, hashtag blessed. Uh huh. What other ideas would you might see? A sunset. Hashtag blessed. A wedding. Blessed. Mm -hmm. Friends and family surrounded by people. Smiles. Blessed. Mariners in the World Series. Hashtag blessed. Right? There you go. Any other thoughts? What might you expect to find in a post like this? Blessed because I find, found a parking spot. Yeah, I'm, I am almost completely sure that that post is out there on social media, right? Um, uh, you know, probably, oh, it was, a, it was even a parking spot in the front. Hashtag blessed, right? All right, you, you get the idea, right? There's a, a lot of these different possibilities, and all these things come to mind. I did a quick scroll through social media this morning, and uh, what I found searching for hashtag blessed photos and images and things were pictures of, there were plates of food, uh, blessed. There were views from tropical resorts, blessed. People wearing fancy clothes and fancy places at fancy events, blessed. As you continue scrolling, you'll see things like photos from birthdays, graduations, baby showers, engagements, weddings, uh, business startups. You know, we just got this. We signed the, the dotted line. Blessed. Um, football games, baseball games, perhaps. Blessed. Uh, before and after weight loss photos. Blessed. New houses, new cars. Blessed. Right? On and on it goes. The, the vision of what our culture seems to find blessed. Uh, there's an opinion writer for the New York Times that commented on this trend of hashtag blessed by observing how it must mean that God has in fact recently blessed my social network with dazzling job promotions, coveted speaking gigs, the most wonderful fiancés ever, front row seats at Fashion Week, and nominations for the 30 under 30 list, right? What's interesting to me is that the use of hashtag blessed seems to merely mimic our cultural definitions of success. Health, wealth, happiness, comfort, those are the things that come to mind when we hear the word blessed. Well, Psalm 41 begins with the word blessed, but it offers us a very different image of what the hashtag blessed life might actually look like. So let's listen to the words of the psalm. Psalm 41. Blessed are those who have regard for the weak. The Lord delivers them in times of trouble. The Lord protects and preserves them. They are counted among the blessed in the land. 
He does not give them over to the desire of their foes. The Lord sustains them on their sickbed and restores them from their bed of illness. I said, have mercy on me, Lord, heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? When one of them comes to see me, he speaks falsely while his heart gathers slander. And then he goes out and spreads it all around. All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, A vile disease has afflicted him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. But may you have mercy on me, Lord. Raise me up that I may repay them. I know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. Because of my integrity, you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, thank you for the gift of your word and for showing us the true way of blessing. God, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hashtag blessed. Blessed are those who are met with success. Those who find fame and fortune. Those who lead cushy, comfortable lives. Blessed are those who share toned and tanned selfies on social media. That's what it said, right? No. These are the things we might conclude when reading the sacred text of social media, but the sacred text of Scripture shows us something very different. Blessed are those who have regard for the weak. Blessed are those who have regard for the weak. Psalm 41 shows us someone praying in the midst of an experience of loneliness, sickness, weakness, and abandonment. And then it tells us the conclusion that this person comes to out of that experience. But the psalm actually tells us the other way around. It starts with the conclusion that they've come to, and then like a flashback goes back to the prayer that they prayed in the middle of their experience, right? So let's start by looking at the experience that the psalmist went through, uh, and then we'll come back to the conclusion that they came to. 
All right, so the psalmist begins telling their experience in verse 4. Verse 4, I said, have mercy on me, Lord. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. So the psalmist is experiencing some kind of sickness, some kind of pain, both in body and in spirit. They need healing from both sickness and sin. And so they turn to God and ask for mercy and for healing. Have mercy on me and heal me. This is the voice of the psalmist crying out. But then another voice enters in to speak. Verse 5, my enemies say of me, when will he die and his name perish? Right? So in his sickness, the psalmist turns to God needing healing and help. Meanwhile, those around the psalmist are turning away from him, abandoning him to his sickness, asking, when will he die and be no more? Right? It's one thing to be sick. It's another thing to be sick and alone. It's one thing to, to, to be weak. It's another thing to be weak and helpless. Right? Abandoned. This is what the psalmist experiences in his sickness and weakness. His enemies have no regard for the weak. It's kind of like in A Christmas Carol. Uh, you know, the classic Christmas time story, a charity worker comes along asking Ebenezer Scrooge for a donation for the poor and the destitute. And Scrooge responds, well, are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses for those people? And the worker answers, well, well, of course, there are many prisons. There are many workhouses. And Scrooge says, good. I, I pay to keep those establishments going. Let them go there. Well, and the charity worker responds, but many can't go there. And many would rather die. And so Scrooge responds, well, if they would rather die, they better do it and decrease the surplus population. Scrooge has no regard for the weak. They might as well die, be left alone. And, and this may seem harsh and heartless to us, but uh, to be honest, this has been the predominant view throughout most of history. Long before Darwin proposed the idea of the survival of the fittest, it was just the way of humanity to let the weak ones fall on their own, while the strong ones kept gaining power, more strength. Humanity has long lived as if weakness and sickness were a justly deserved curse, while strength and health were hashtag blessed. And this is how the enemies in the psalm live deserting the psalmist 
to die in his sickness. But it's actually even worse than that. It's even worse than that. Verse 6, when one of them comes to see me, he speaks falsely. While his heart gathers slander, and then he goes out and he spreads it around, right? So not only do these enemies leave the psalmist to die, they actually blame him for his own sickness and rub it in and then go spread it around everyone else as well. They don't simply ignore the psalmist and their sickness. That would be bad. But even worse, they come to visit him. They tell him, you deserve to be sick. And then they go around spreading rumors about how awful this person must be to have become so sick and so weak. And we learn that these are actually not even merely enemies who've always been against him. Verse 9 tells us that even my close friend, someone I trusted, someone who I shared bread with, has turned against me. Right? He thought he had friends who would stick with him through thick and thin, but they turn out to be fair-weather friends. And when the weather is not fair, when the storm comes, they abandon him and even blame him. It reminds me a lot of Job's friends. You remember that? Job has lost his home. His family has died. His health has withered away. And they come and gather around him and sit with him for a little while. And that sitting in silence with them is the best thing they do. But then they start to talk. And they say, well, surely you've done something to to bring this on yourself, right? Surely there's some sin that you've committed, something. I mean, just let's go through the list. Let's figure it out, right? Surely uh, it's something that you've done. And the thing is that this too has been a common way of thinking throughout most of history. John chapter 9 tells us that when Jesus' disciples come upon a blind man, well, they turn to Jesus and they ask, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Right? They, they just assume that this disease, this discomfort, is a direct result of some kind of sin that has occurred. They assume it must be something that's deserved. They think, uh, what, what, what's, what's happened here, right? It's, he has brought this upon himself, or his parents have brought this upon him. And as we hear stories like this, Job and those disciples, we think, oh, that's ancient, that's archaic, right? We don't think that way anymore. And yet, we often do. We all, this, this line of thinking often remains with us today. When we come across homeless people, how often do we think, well, they probably got themselves into that situation, Right? It's probably their fault that they're out there. We often do not have regard for the weak. Rather than having compassion, we have judgment, right? It's still with us today. We may even be tempted to think of ourselves in this way. 
when we go through sickness, when we go through distress, when we go through painful seasons, we might find ourselves going, what have I done to deserve this? Surely I've done something to bring this upon me. And we weigh ourselves down with judgment and with blame. We often do not have regard for our own weakness. But blessed is the one who has regard for the weak. We would do well to learn from the psalmist and turn toward God in moments like this rather than against ourselves, which we often do. And so this, this is the psalmist's experience. He, he turns to God in his weakness, but in, is abandoned and, and blamed by others. So in verse 10, he turns back to God once more, repeating the same prayer as he did in verse 4. May you have mercy on me, Lord. Raise me up that I may repay them. And then in verses 11 to 12, he gives thanks to God for his deliverance. For having been delivered, I know that you're pleased with me. My enemy does not triumph over me. You uphold me. You set me in your presence forever. So this is the experience that the psalmist has had. This experience of sickness, abandonment, blame, ultimately God's deliverance. And so what conclusion does the psalmist come to out of this experience? What has he learned from it? Well, back up to verse 1. He begins by telling us what he's learned before he flashes back to that experience. And what he's learned is this. Blessed are those who have regard for the weak. Blessed are those who have regard for the weak. And then it's followed by a pronouncement of God's saving activity. The Lord delivers them in their times of trouble. The Lord protects and preserves them. He does not give them over to the desire of their foes. The Lord sustains them on their sickbed and restores them from their bed of illness. Now there's a couple of ambiguities and perhaps even intentional double meanings in these opening verses that are worth some reflection. So here's a couple of questions. First of all, what does it actually mean to have regard for the weak? What does that mean? And then a second question, who is the them in verses 1 through 3? Who exactly is the them? That's being described. Let's consider these together. First, the word translated have regard for. What does it mean to have regard for the weak? Uh, this phrase has a range of meanings. There are some other translations that perhaps more accurately capture it by saying, blessed are those who consider the weak. Who consider the weak. Think about the word consider for a moment and the range of meanings that that word has. On the one hand, there's a social dimension of what it means to be considerate of others, to take consideration of other people, right? It might look like serving someone 
welcoming someone, being kind to someone. And so that is absolutely one of the meanings that's here in this Hebrew word. Blessed are those who are considerate to the weak, right? who welcome them, who serve them, who show them kindness. There's a social dimension to this. But there's also another dimension to the word consider. It has this social dimension, but it also has an an, an intellectual or, or even educational dimension, right? You might consider the words that someone has spoken. Ponder them. You might consider the writings of a great philosopher or teacher. You might consider the lives of historical figures and what you might learn from them, right? There are all these other ways that we might consider things, to learn from them. And this meaning is also at play in this Hebrew word in verse 1. Blessed are those who consider the lives of the weak, who reflect on them and learn from them. Blessed are those who make the weak their teachers. According to this psalm, the weak are not to be dismissed either socially or intellectually. Their lives are valuable. And as such, they are people we ought to both care for and learn from. Learn from those who are weak. Well, what is there to learn from the lives of the weak? Well, that's the rest of verses 1 through 3, which brings us to the second question. Who is the them in verses 1 through 3, right? The Lord delivers them in their times of trouble. The Lord protects and preserves them he does not give them over to their desire, uh, the desire of their foes. The Lord sustains them on their sickbed, restores them from their bed of illness, right? There's all these blessings and, and promises to them. Well, who is the them? Because back up at the very beginning, there are two groups of people, right? There are those who have regard for the weak, but there's also the weak. Who's the them in the rest of the verses? It's not obviously clear in the Hebrew grammar which one it is. Uh, And different scholars interpret it differently. Uh, And I think there's cause to reflect on it both ways, but I think it makes a whole lot of sense to see the them in these verses as the ones who are weak. The them that these promises are for are the people who are weak. What do we learn from the lives of those who are weak? Here's a way of paraphrasing these verses. I have the the NIV that we've read together on one side, but then here's a paraphrase of, of how we might think about this. Blessed are those who consider the lives of the weak and learn from them that the Lord delivers the weak in times of trouble. The Lord protects and preserves the weak. 
The weak are hashtag blessed. They are the blessed ones in the land. God does not give the weak over to their foes. The Lord sustains the weak on their sickbed and restores the weak from illness. I think this is a great way to understand these verses. Why, going back to verse 1, why is it blessed to have regard for the weak? Well, because God has regard for the weak. Because God delivers them, protects them, preserves them, cares for them. Why is it blessed to consider the weak? Because God considers the weak. God has welcomed and cared for them. According to Psalm 41, hashtag blessed looks a lot less like photo ops with the rich and famous and a lot more like service to the poor and obscure. That's what true blessing looks like. And this brings us to the true meaning of this psalm. This psalm, like all others, finds its true meaning in Jesus. Because when Jesus came, he did not build a portfolio of riches. He did not climb ladders of power. He did not post hashtag blessed selfies of luxurious vacations or worldly successes. He did not associate with the rich and the powerful, but rather made his friends among prostitutes and tax collectors. Jesus called not scribes, but fishermen to be his disciples. Jesus restored the sick and the lame. Though his disciples would cast judgment on the blind man, Jesus would heal him. Because Jesus has regard for the weak. He is the truly blessed one. And he teaches us to do the same. Jesus says things like, blessed are the meek those who are weak. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus told stories about good Samaritans who stopped on the side of the road to care for the one who'd been harassed and left for dead, just like the psalmist had. Jesus told his disciples to feed the hungry, to welcome the stranger, to clothe the naked, to care for the sick, to visit the prisoner. Jesus teaches us to have regard for the weak. But, but Jesus does much more than this. Not only does he serve the weak, and teach us to do the same, 
he actually joins the weak right where they are. He didn't only tell his disciples to care for the least of these. He goes a step further saying, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. He becomes one of the least of these. The Word, who was in the beginning with God, took on flesh and dwelt among us. The King of all creation was born in a manger among animals. Throughout his life, the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. As Paul describes in Philippians 2, Jesus, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus did not only serve those who were weak, he became one who was weak. The weakest of all, dying death on a cross. And so as we look to Jesus, we can see that Jesus relates to the blessing of verse 1. He is someone who had regard for the weak. But Jesus also relates to the prayer in the psalm as well. For when Jesus was on the cross, surely his enemies said, as in verse 5, when will he die and his name perish? Right? We've finally gotten rid of him. Let's just wait for him to breathe his last. We don't have to deal with him ever again. Just like in the psalm, Jesus' enemies did speak falsely of him. They did spread rumors of him. Jesus himself will quote verse 9 at the Last Supper when he tells his disciples that one of them will betray him, even one of my close friends, someone I trusted, the one who I've broken bread with, will turn against me. And Judas did betray him. And Peter did deny him. Meanwhile. Jesus was abandoned and left for dead. But even the final verses of this psalm take on new meaning in Jesus. Verse 10, may you have mercy on me, Lord, and raise me up that I may repay them this is another one of those potential double meanings. It sounds very much like the psalmist may have in mind when he prays this. 
vindication, right? Payback. You know, revenge. Let me get out of the sick bed so that I can go give it to them. But this word, repay, can also mean restore. And isn't that what Jesus has done? Raise me up that I might restore them. After Peter denied Jesus three times, he calls Peter to him and asks him three times, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. And he restores back to Peter all that Peter had done to deny Jesus. When Jesus is raised up, he doesn't pay back with revenge. He pays back with grace. He pays back with forgiveness, and he restores us to himself. And so Jesus truly can pray, I know that you are pleased with me. My enemy has not triumphed over me. Because of my integrity, you uphold me. And in the resurrection, set me in your presence forever. The psalm finds its true meaning in Jesus. He is the one who has taught us to care for the weak. He is the one who himself has become weak to the point of death. And he is the one who has been raised up so that we too might be raised up with him in new life. And so I want to ask you, where are you in the midst of this psalm? Perhaps you are like the poor and sick person on their bed, in pain, feeling lonely, feeling abandoned. If that's where you are, Jesus is with you. Jesus, too, has become weak to sit with you by your sickbed, to hold your hand and remind you that you are beloved. And perhaps you find yourself in another circumstance this morning and you're doing well. And if that's the case, who do you know that you might have regard for? Who do you know that you might consider and show the kindness of Christ? To care for them, but also to learn from them. Blessed are those who have regard for the weak. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen.